The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, media and technology, rock stars, comedians, authors, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Throughout his career, he's like, it's not a good time to be in bonds. Not right now. And like, he's been in bonds the whole time. And indeed, it's been a great time to be in bonds. So that may be finally changing. You know, like you say, this is the first time we've really seen inflation. And that's kind of killer for bonds. And we are live once again from the Robbins School at the University of Richmond for an hour of greed, hubris, ego, grudges, backstabbing. Game of Thrones, you ask? Melrose Place? Dynasty? No. Fixed income. The book is The Bond King, how one man made a market, built an empire, lost it all. And I'm joined by the author, Mary Childs, host of NPR's Planet Money. So do stay with us. This special live episode is made possible by our host, the Robbins School at the University of Richmond, preparing students to be future leaders in a global business world with an emphasis on real-world teaching practices, scholarship, and service. More at robbins.richmond.edu. And Salomon and Ludwin, a wealth management firm in Richmond dedicated to helping families plan their financial futures. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has built trust by giving clients transparency. Learn more at salomonludwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR and NPR One, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please follow, rate, and dote on me. Joining me on stage at the Robbins School at the University of Richmond is Mary Childs, host of NPR's Planet Money. This book, The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Built an Empire, and Lost It All, manages to make a page turner out of the arcane world of fixed income. Would you please give her a hand of applause? I got to ask you, Mary, I come from the equities world and I I read Liars Poker just like everybody else. And it was equities in Dallas was made fun of in the 1980s. But, you know, I I think of fixed income and it's like rice cakes in the grocery aisle. It doesn't excite me. But you are excited by fixed income and you delineate in the book how many orders of magnitude the credit world is just bigger than, than the stock market. Yeah, it is. And it's also, I mean, people can take issue with this. This is definitely a personal opinion. But, you know, when you have a a fixed income agreement, when you have a bond, there are covenants and companies agree to things and you can take their stuff if they fail to meet those promises. So to me, there's a lot of, you know, rubber meets road in the bond market. And I'm sure I know the stock market is very exciting in and of itself. I'm sure that's true. Um, I just like they go up and down and there's like not that much, I'm sorry, complexity. But no, in fairness, we've been talking about inflation a lot. You might hear it timestamped everywhere as inflation is at a 40-year high. And I shared this anecdote the other day. It reminds me of, you know, when I was a young American, we came from Iran. My dad took me to a Savings of America Bank in North Miami where they handed us a toaster and a blender and a, a tooth, some 15%, you know, CD back in 1982. And that's when the Fed was fighting inflation. Yeah. We have nothing like that now. And I thought that that game was all gone. The Fed has spent the, the last 40 years breaking the back of inflation. And, you know, just by way of explanation, when uh, yields fall, the bond prices go up. The, the ones with the higher yields become more dealer. So the genius in Bill Gross was that he found that, as you said in other interviews, you don't just have to put these things away in, in drawers and clip the coupons, that you could actually trade them and make a financial empire out of them. 
That's exactly right. Yeah. When Bill Gross started his uh, first job in 1971, bonds were just, you know, kept in a vault in the basement. And his job was literally just tearing off these little pieces of paper and mailing them in for an interest payment. So he, you know, he and a cohort, you know, you can't trade by yourself. So certainly there were others with him that brought about this revolution. But they basically realized that, you know, inflation was eroding the value of these bonds. Why not sell this bond that you don't like anymore that you you know think is really not going to fare as well and buy a new bond. And then you can keep trading and go after something called price appreciation. The underlying bond moves up and down in price. Right. Less volatile than a stock, obviously. You're getting the coupon income and capital appreciation or depreciation. Yeah, but things, you know, things can happen. So if I'm looking at a bond and I think that, you know, this Campbell's soup bond, nobody knows that Campbell's soup is going bust or whatever. I think I have this insight. I can sell to you. You have a different view. And that is, you know, the foundation of this. This is like very old school. You know, this is what makes a market. But this just hadn't happened in the bond world until Bill Gross and his friends. So what is it about Bill Gross in particular, a psych major at Duke? That's right. Right. Went off and got some graduate work and was a bit of an inveterate gambler. He developed a risk appetite in Vegas in the mid 60s. Talk to us. Yeah. So he um, he actually was in a really bad car accident his senior year of college and ended up in the hospital for a long time. And he lost part of his scalp. He did. His scalp was detached. I'm so sorry for telling you that. Um, and and um, in, while he was in the hospital, you know, he had a lot of free time. So he just started reading this book by Ed Thorpe called Beat the Dealer. And it basically was a strategy for counting cards, for basically learning blackjack and counting, you know, high card, low card, and trying to figure out when you have good odds to bet big and when you should lay off. And then, so he practiced and practiced and practiced and realized that it kind of worked. And then he went to Vegas to try it out for real and it very much still worked. And he gained this sense of risk, this ability to feel risk. And, you know, for this book, I actually kind of tried to learn to count cards. I can't say that I did learn because it was many years ago and I don't want to be tested on this. But a hedge fund manager taught me in Las Vegas how to count cards. And I think we doubled his money in like a couple hours. And, you know, that was it was not an enormous sum of money, but it works. And it is kind of this feeling of you get to sense when the table's hot and when you should be leaning in and when you should be taking it easy. And that feeling, I think, is very much what Bill could feel in the markets, you know? I don't see how you transubstantiate that. I don't even know if that's the right verb. I just wanted to use it. It's a really exciting I think I missed that on the SAT verbal. But anyway, (laughs) I don't see how you port that into the bond market. We didn't even have the junk bond market. Back then it was what, Treasury... 10 to 30-year bellwether bond yeah. before Michael Milken. What what did he see there? I think Bill was, it's actually interesting. His stance was always extremely bearish and that weirdly helped him in the bond. You know, bond investors are notoriously pessimistic, right? You know, they, they want their coupons. They just want to go home at the end of the day. They're not trying to shoot for the moon here. Like stock investors are telling you a story and they're selling you a story and they want to kind of shake you till you get it. Bond investors are just not like that. The, you know, the upside really is more, more limited. And I think, you know, if you look back at the things that Bill Gross has said over the decades, he's been calling the end of this bull market since kind of the beginning. Of the bond bull market. Yes, that's right. So throughout his career, he's like, it's not a good time to be in bonds. Not right now. And like he's been in bonds the whole time. And indeed, it's been a great time to be in bonds. So that may be finally changing. You know, like you say, this is the first time we've really seen inflation. And that's uh, kind of killer for bonds. But Mary, it took a while for the equity culture in this country to build. I mean, you had the, the rock star fund manager and Peter Lynch at Fidelity and obviously the late 90s and day traders and whatnot. 
I don't remember how we invested in fixed income. It was before ETFs. I mean, you pretty much would buy bonds directly from the treasury or you'd call a broker to buy you a bond. I don't remember there being total return funds when I was younger. There were. They just weren't as cool. No one talked about them. You know, they I mean, Bill Gross has been doing this or, you know, had been doing this for decades. So it definitely existed. It was just we didn't call them as much and we didn't listen to them on the television as much. And we didn't, you know, there just wasn't the same appreciation because they're just not as fun. People don't like them as much. That's wrong, of course. But so I just remember <laughs> for the longest time him saying the 30 year bull market in bonds and now it's the yeah. 40 year bull market in bonds. You've had again, you go back and look where interest rates were in 1981 and 1982 when late Paul Volcker had to break the back of inflation, effectively killed the economy to rescue it from spiraling inflation. You know, it's a it's a cry wolf thing. You know, they said the 20 year bull markets, you could go back and look at mm -hmm. fortune, money magazine, smart money. Oh, we think the bond market inflation is coming for the first time in a long time. We're actually experiencing capital I inflation. Uh, that's right. And it's people weird. are seeing bond yields creep up and actually feeling pain. Yeah, absolutely. It's a super real phenomenon. And I feel like one thing that's been sort of interesting, you know, we we did a show last year at Planet Money in February, basically right before inflation truly started to to take off, which I say because we were like, why isn't inflation taking off? It's like really not taking off. It's weird. And then well, we kind of top ticked it. But um, I do think that it has been a, a real paradigm shift. And I'm sure, you know, I know I wrote articles being like, there's no way that yields could go lower from here in they like did. 2010. And yep. they went way lower, like 3%. Who ever thought of... So there was, you know, I think I, <laughs> I like Bill Gross, I'm guilty of having tried to, to say, you know, time the market. But I think, yeah, it's a real paradigm shift. And you can look at all the different factors that are causing that today. They're certainly unique and, and you know, oddball factors and, and scary and sad ones. But, um, but it has manifested in this extremely real phenomenon. What about this vicious rumor that to report this book, which took Mary seven plus years? Yeah that you went undercover as a Girl Scout with brownies? Is there any Maybe truth to this? Maybe I shouldn't have this? told this story in the book. Uh, you have to disabuse it. I need a straw man. Yeah, no, no, that's fair. So, okay. So when I landed in Southern California, when Bill Gross was shockingly ousted from his own firm, September 2014, I no one was talking to me. No one would answer my calls. And this is kind of normal. People shut down when the big thing happens. But as a reporter, as a beat reporter, you know, my job was to get the story. So I had to go doorstep Bill Gross, which is like very horrifying, right? You go to the home of someone who has recently been wronged or, you know, the center of some scandal or some tornado of, of some kind. And so I had to go to his house. And that's like, I don't know, that filled me with great shame. I didn't want to do that to anybody. So I, but I had to do it. So Doesn't I- Doesn't he live in some like 500 acre compound <laughs> near Newport Beach? That's what I always heard that- legend. Yes. Um, it's not 500, 500 acres, but it is beautiful and Citizen enormous. Citizen Kane Cliffside. or something like that. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. And I like forgot, I forgot that it was a gated community, but you know, in my like panic over having to do this. But I had just recently visited a contact in Southern California who had given me a tin of brownies, like homemade delicious brownies. And I was like, okay, I mean, I'm from Virginia. Like I would bring a casserole to someone who just had a bad day, right? Like that's normal. So I gather up my brownies trying to justify this horrifying thing. And I drive up and of course it's gated. So the person at the gate is like, ma'am, can I help you? And I'm like, oh, I was just trying to, is, uh, is Bill Gross in? <laughs> and she's just like, girl, no, like, I'm, I'm not going to tell you that. And I was like, no, 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 that's fair. Can I give him these brownies? And she was like, also hard. No, like, what are you thinking? She didn't say any of this. She just stared at me. And I was like, no, okay, okay. And I just left, you know, total shame, tail between my legs. And I was like, okay, I did it. I can check that off the list. I can tell my boss I did it. Phew. 
And I buried the memory and I never thought about it again until somehow years later, some source of mine from PIMCO is like, did you really go to Bill Gross's house dressed as a Girl Scout? And I was like, oh my God, how did, how did that even happen? Why would Such I be wearing a Such a game of telephone and here we are talking about it. Yeah, it's like, but like I already knew Bill, so I don't understand. <laughs> what purpose would it serve to Why? dress up? Yeah, like he's like, Look, I'm shaming myself. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it's flawed, but you know, it's a rumor. So and I did not do that, just to be clear. If there's any confusion, I didn't do it. <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are live at the Robin School at the University of Richmond with Mary Childs, Planet Money host, her new best-selling book is The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Built an Empire, and Lost It All. I do have to ask you, I've read all those bylines for years because coming out of the financial crisis, which they kind of sort of predicted. They did, yeah. And they almost were quasi-governmental in the help that they gave Treasury and Washington and everyone. Talk about you know talking your own book and reaping the rewards of this. They became a $300 billion shop. And I kept wondering to myself, reading your articles, why don't you just close it off to investors? Mm-hmm. Is it going to become unwieldy at this point? I understand that the bond markets are super liquid and everything, but how much is enough? What a good question. I mean, there's a, and this was always something that kind of um, chased PIMCO as they grew. They have always been pretty big in the bond market, you know, relative to the overall bond market size and certainly relative to the liquidity in the bond market. And I think, you know, that can be an advantage in fixed income in a way that I think is actually kind of poorly understood, where one of the ways that you can make money in fixed income still today, which is actually rare because, you know, these markets are getting more and more efficient, is in the new issue market. So when a company is bringing a bond to market, they will, you know, typically those bonds are a little bit underpriced so that everybody's happy to buy them. You know, you want to jump in and most new issues pop when they hit the market. And if you're big, like PIMCO, you get the first look. And people are like, oh, is PIMCO going to buy this issue? Like, should I buy this issue? Maybe if PIMCO likes it, maybe I like it. And so they get the anchor position. They get a large allocation of these new bonds. So basically, size can actually be an advantage for a a firm like PIMCO, especially in fixed income. But you always see hedge fund managers and star mutual fund managers kind of close it off. How many hands do you want to hold? How unwieldy do you want to become? I don't understand. He's now worth something like two and a half, three billion dollars. It's just been this question. Jack Bogle and others have posed it. How much is enough? Yeah, when do you stop? Yeah. More money, more problems. So. <laughs> I mean, there's truth to that. There is a, a fund manager who worked at PIMCO in the 90s who is who I love. Like, I think he's very funny. He's throughout the book. And he he told me this story that actually didn't make it into the book, but he says that when he went to Bill Gross to basically retire, he was getting nervous because his fund was too big and he felt like the market had grown, his fund had grown. He had to put the money to work when clients gave him new money to, to invest. And he was like, I just don't feel like I can get my arms around everything anymore. Like I'm not able to do as good of a job as I want. And he says that Bill Gross looked at him and said, to think of limits to growth is weak-minded and stupid. So... <laughs> I mean, there's a bit of a taxing job. I meant I profiled uh, PIMCO in the new normal, which is what they coined, I think, in 2009 to say, coming out of the financial crisis, we're going to have a, a whole standard of living shift. A bunch of companies are going to be bankrupt. For the large part, for the most part, as a, as a kind of an equity call, it was wrong, even mm-hmm. though bonds continue to do well. And just for you guys to picture Orange County parking lot of a gigantic mall um, next to Pacific Life with the whale and Mm -hmm. you walk into this office park Mm -hmm. and you see just a very quiet place. It's not a rambunctious, you know, trading floor or anything. And Bill Gross sitting there kind of zen-like with his tie untied, Mm -hmm. just ready to go on TV at any point, staring at the monitor. And these guys have to be there at 3.30 or 4 in the morning. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's there was a lot of emphasis on FaceTime and the office culture was, I think, extremely rigid, really. You know, Bill didn't like eye contact. He didn't like noise. People weren't really supposed to make noise on the phone. So you would call Newport Beach from even the New York office of PIMCO and they would be like, hey, man, hey, I can't I can't really talk right now. You know, it would just be <laughs> this dead silent. And occasionally you, people would put on a little show yelling at their sales coverage on Wall Street trying to get a better deal or whatever. But for the most part, Bill wanted it quiet, so it was quiet. Bill didn't want anyone to make eye contact or bother him or interrupt his focus, so people didn't. Is he in the right line of work? <laughs> then I really wonder, because he, at the same time, if you read this book, he's building and building and going into verticals, and you know they've gone in and out of equities. They've had people trade emerging markets and things, bringing rock stars. There's been a certain bit of a revolving door from the Federal Reserve banks yeah. and people who've gone there. If you're shy and intensely introverted, why surround yourself with people that you end up... Was it your impression in this book that he kind of enjoyed the sniping and the cutdowns? I think that's such a good question. I don't think I've actually gotten that one before. I think he doesn't view the sniping and the cutdowns as such. I think he views it as whatever's necessary for client performance. Hmm. And if you're doing something for client performance, it must be okay. You know, like every behavior is forgiven if it's in that umbrella. And so I think he was sincerely confused when people were like, you were mean to me in a meeting. And mm -hmm. he's like, well, no, I was trying to get the best performance. I was trying to get a good trade. Like, how is that mean? There's nothing. It's just like a it's speaking a totally different language, I think. So, yeah. And, and, and there's a division of labor that is sort of supposed to happen at a lot of places like PIMCO. You know, PIMCO is not the only one that kind of delineates function where Bill was in charge of investing. Someone else was in charge of managing the clients and those relationships and selling to new clients. And someone else entirely was in charge of, you know, being the executive, guiding the business, you know, making all the kind of choices about the direction of the business. And Bill was supposed to, they called this very early on the, the three-legged stool of PIMCO. And they thought that that gave them balance and stability. And when that changed, they felt like that's like, oh, this is where we went awry. We deviated from that structure when, you know, Muhammad Alarian came in as co-CEO and co-CIO. They kind of mark that. They're never going to do it again, they say. So I think he didn't have the right personality to manage people, but he was never supposed to manage people. What about that try to enter that, you know, stool of power, fame, and money? Ah, yes. So Bill Gross used to ask people when they were applying for a job at PIMCO, which do you want, power, fame, or money? And he liked this as an interview question. PIMCO loved doing really tough interviews, but he liked this one in particular because um, it always revealed a vulnerability and it made people uncomfortable. And so they would be like squirming a little bit and unsure what they should say. And I think most of them typically chose power or money. And Bill's answer was always fame. He was always motivated by the desire to be famous. And that, I think, makes him a particularly rich subject, obviously, for a book because he's generated so much content over many decades. But it does make him, you know, it does motivate him. You can see it motivating him. And, and when a headline tweaks him, he kind of, he can go ballistic. And the kind of a driving force in this book is his relationship with the media and the press and uh, an article that he didn't like kind of helped to catalyze a spiral for him. Hmm. Take me back to 2006, 2007. It's amazing if you go back to the Fed Open Market Committee comments of early 2006, it's as if it's oblivious to the asteroid or the impactor that's about to hit the world economy. We do see some softness in the housing market, Bit but of an nothing really systemic. I was at Business Week back then, and we were wondering if an emerging market was going to blow up, if there was going to be a currency run somewhere. And meanwhile, it was happening right here. Talk to me about the shoe leather research that Bill Gross's minions did to find out that 
you know, what his theory might be validated here. Yeah. So he and his mortgage team, you know, the team covering the mortgage market, investing in mortgage-backed securities, they already had a bit of a sense that things were overheating and that there would come a point, you know, that people would no longer be able to sell to the next person and that the people holding the mortgages would no longer be able to make their payments. You know, that's a reality that happens, right? So they see this kind of coming, but Bill Gross is like, no, you know what we need? We need to go out into the world. We can't just look at our Bloomberg terminals and our little reports that come in from wherever. We need to go see it with our own eyes. So he sends them out into the world. And there's this interesting thing where the narrative became, the story became that he sent them out to pose as interested home buyers to pretend that they were going to buy homes and they would go on tours with mortgage brokers. And, you know, the brokers would be like, oh, look at this house. And they would be like, oh, I really like it. I might buy it. But the the thing that interested me, this was actually a scoop by my fact checker, where they never actually pretended to be home buyers. Bill Gross kind of seems to have gotten it stuck in his head that that's how it happened. And then it became part of the PIMCO brand that they'd done this like subterfuge thing. Anyway, so they went out into the world and they did find, they you know made relationships, got, got to know all these different people that you know were brokers and bankers and um, you know figures in the local mortgage areas. And they did get access to more data than you know their competitors were getting. But they had this early look and and robust look at the mortgage market and said, yeah, this is just not sustainable in any way. So the uh, the inference here being that you want to stay out of all but the purest of treasuries, the most risk averse assets that if everybody, the entire world piles into something, you don't want to be in the funky mortgage all day. Right. Or even the junk bonds. Yeah. Even the like corporate bonds that on a good day are going to yield more on a like. When the bad day comes, they're not going to do as well in a recession and you might lose your money. So, hmm. yeah. they. So take me back to 2007 when he had to cancel this cruise. I remember the anecdote <laughs> in your book. It's the one thing he liked to do because he could completely not have to take trips if he's going somewhere, visit this source in London or Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. He liked to shut down and go on a cruise. But Bear Stearns was melting down. All sorts of things was happening. Yeah. So this is August 2007. Which, you know, there were there were some funds at BNP Paribas that they announced they literally could not value. They did not know how to value the funds because they just the prices were not there. They couldn't find the right values, which is bananas, right? Like that that is a really like a bank is saying, oh, no, we can't price this. That's just it was a lot of people mark that as really the true beginning of the financial crisis. And, you know, this is what Bill Gross and PIMCO had been waiting for. They for months had had this call that things would go sideways and they were really risk off and missing out on this rally that, you know, everyone else is still at the party and they're kind of home twiddling their thumbs. And finally, this is, you know, they've been underperforming too. And clients are like, hey, do you mind doing better? Like everyone else is doing better. So, so they end up, you know, Bill's supposed to take this vacation, this cruise to Panama in August, 2007, and everything's finally happening. So he's like, all right, fine, fine. I'm just going to delay. So he actually postpones this very precious cruise. He takes his vacations very seriously, as should we all. And uh, and he ends up postponing it. They go in December when things were also on fire. But <laughs> Now walk me through everything uh, before we take break. Uh, everything that transpired between 2007 and the kind of the bottom of the financial crisis. You could even argue into March of 2009 when we were still worried if a Citigroup was going to fail. Lehman Brothers mm-hmm. had failed in the autumn the early autumn of 2008, I remember talking to Mohammed Elarian for that story on the new normal, and he wow. he admitted that he turned to his wife and asked if we should take ten thousand dollars out of an ATM. Mm-hmm. That things got that tricky and sticky. Yeah, it was a very scary time because that was the moment when people realized that things could fail, that there were real consequences and far-reaching consequences, and everyone became 
very worried about counterparty risk because everything was so intertwined. Explain, all of explain the, that for us. Sure. Listeners. Yeah. So basically, like all of these entities had traded with each other and had deals with each other, promises, I'll pay you, you know, I owe you margin. Um, and all of these agreements, I mean, they were throughout and everyone was so interconnected. So AIG, Goldman Sachs, PIMCO, they were all facing each other. Promiscuous and- lending. You could say that. And, you know, Paul McCauley basically called this shadow banking, you know, this this wide ranging web of of promises of lending of shadow banking. And so basically what happened was they the markets totally crashed. Lehman, you know, we all know what happened. And PIMCO had seen this coming. Right. So they had been out of the market and they had been much more risk averse. And so when all of that happened, they were in a way better position to be able to scoop up all the stuff that everyone else is panicking and selling at a discount. And that included, to some extent, like the U.S. government. You know, there were there were entities, Fannie and Freddie, the mortgage giants, that, you know, they had guaranteed or backed $5 trillion of mortgage debt, and which is bananas. And a lot of that was looking pretty unstable. So they needed to roll, you know, they needed to issue new debt. And PIMCO sitting there like, well, we don't have to buy this. We don't have to say, you know, I'm here for you, U.S. government. It wasn't clear. The government had not made clear until that point how much it would really back these entities. And PIMCO, I think PIMCO and Bill Gross, more than anyone, helped to kind of actualize that promise, helped to say, you know, you need to actually make clear if you're going to back these entities. And they did. This is the ledge that you came up to in the book where I was uncomfortable. It's even more (laughs) than too big to fail. It's quasi-governmental. Right. The U.S. government, Treasury, the Fed, everybody allowed this one bond management firm out of this guy's imagination in the 70s and 80s to become a kind of an economy unto itself. Yeah. There was a guy I quoted in an article at the time saying, if PIMCO didn't exist, the government would have needed to invent it. That basically it was so critical to the functioning of the U.S. economy and the government's ability to staunch the panic that, yeah, it was just right there at, at the very epicenter. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR and NPR One, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please follow and rate us. We are, of course, on WVTF Radio IQ across the great Commonwealth. You can catch us in Charlottesville, in Richmond, in Roanoke. We are on WERA Radio Arlington in Northern Virginia and D.C. We're down in Asheville on WPVM, out west in Ventura, California on KPPQ. Holler if you, too, would like us on your air. If you are just joining us, I am on stage at the Robbins School with Mary Childs, author of The Page Turner, The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Built an Empire, and Lost It All. The book, how did you manage to write a a page turner about PIMCO, the largest bond management shop in the country? I I wonder how you walked into the pitch meeting with your agent and everything and said, I have you know, the next like liars poker. You can't or say that. You can't say that when ball. you're pitching. Everyone says, don't say your next Michael Lewis because everyone says that the next Michael Lewis and no one is the next Michael Lewis. But how would you substantially, I mean, this is an old bond term, like substantially confident. What did Michael Milken say? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm substantially sure that this is going to be a pay. How do you know going in just on hunch with all the headlines that you wrote that there's going to be enough in here, especially when he himself wasn't cooperating to fill out seven years of work? Seven. Yeah, it was a lot. Um, There was so much. So I wrote this article for Bloomberg News in 2014 that took me, I think, three months approximately. Um, And it was the, you know, behind the scenes of what had actually happened when Bill Gross, I say, was quit fired because sometimes I would forget who I'm talking to, like what camp they're in. And if they're a Bill person, they're like, no, he was fired. And if they're a PIMCO person, he quit. So anyway. Um, so that was my political uh, compromise. But 
yeah, so it took me a long time to get the story together, to get to coax people into talking to me. And it was 3,000 words or something, which at Bloomberg, you know, I was a beat reporter. I wrote like 500 word stories. This was a really, really big story for me. And I was like, this has a fraction of what I've learned. Like, this is just a peek behind the door, but there is this immense, rich world because everyone, I mean, emotions were so high. And in retrospect, I've learned now that there was such an important element of just profit and money to this that made it so much more emotional where Bill Gross's departure helped to decimate the profit sharing, the profit that the partners would get. And of course, that's obvious, but I didn't think about the psychological effect of that, that that's why people were freaking out and calling me and telling me all these stories. But I learned so much about what had happened and there's so much precision in it too. And it matters to these people. And I think it matters to the story where, you know, there's a moment in the book where everyone thinks that Bill Gross has just told a lie. Um, and it's the management committee versus Bill. And they're like, Bill, did you do this? And he's like, no, I didn't do it. And in my, you know, as I was reporting, I realized that everyone believes in what they are telling me. They rush them on like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they, exactly. And, you know, when I was fact checking with some of the people that were in the room, they were like, oh, maybe he wasn't really lying. Maybe he did see that distinction that you're making. And, and that's a real thing. You know, it was, it's really interesting to make people kind of revisit this and think about it with a new light. But anyway, the pitch meeting, you know, to your actual question, to me, you know, the perceived boringness of bonds was part of the pitch where I feel like, you know, if you don't look closely, if you haven't peeled this back, you kind of think that your retirement money is being managed by like some really boring guy in Boston who like his suit's too big for him, you know, and he like doesn't care. He's just like- Michael Milken wasn't boring. Jeff Gunlack is not boring. That's it's true, just, but know? I feel like Milken, I almost don't even qualify as, you know, I feel like he's an LBO guy, even mm -hmm. though he's obviously, you know, he's a, a credit person for sure. But right. he, to, in my mind, he speaks a different language than, than the kind of mutual fund guys, right? Jeffrey Gunlack is a great example of why this area is not boring. But I don't know, that perception just seems to, you know, I, I, I had one of my friends who's a former editor at DealBook take a look at the book beforehand just as an expert reader. And he was like, you know, I know a lot, but I thought the buy side was a lot more boring than this. Like, I thought these people were more boring. And, and I think that perception, you know, of course it's still people, but the extent to which we're all just totally petty children trying to stab each other, like, I think that is poorly understood. <laughs> Wow. Uh, <laughs> we had to step back a little bit and go from the prophecy of the new normal. And I was reading all of his uh, his quarterly letters or whatever they were. They increasingly became unhinged. He was citing, uh, uh, you know, time to be a chastened adult. And he was talking about childhood crushes and everything. But the new normal prophecy became pretty universal. The, the press ran with it. Everybody was going with the new normal. Business Week did an issue on new normal. They went and toured a plant that was shuttering in normal Illinois. You started seeing it kind of, I think they were going to trademark the new normal. Yes, they didn't, unfortunately. And the prophecy, I remember when they told me, was that this is an entire reset, a generational reset. You're going to have a standard of living adjustment. We were all binging on money that we didn't have. We were extending ourselves on liar loans and um, subprime and credit card debt and student loans and everything. And it was right for a while in 2010, 11, and 12, maybe. The stock market came roaring back. I remember them specifically saying, Stocks are going to be underwater uh, for a generation because they're going to get liquidated so companies can make their payments just to keep the lights on. And I think that sowed the undoing of Bill Gross and, and PIMCO's hegemony. If you can get into 2013 and 2014 when this winning streak yeah. suddenly ended. Yeah. So, you know, I do think the kind of dire forecast, it was 
kind of true for a minute, but to your point, stocks and bonds came roaring back. Right. Their their actual market call was totally wrong. They did trade around it. You know, there there were. It, it's not to say that they like underperformed, except that in 2011, Bill Gross made this enormous treasury call. He said that you know the Fed was going to stop uh, some of the supportive measures that had instated in the crisis, and who was going to fill that hole. And he basically thought there was going to be a wipeout in treasuries, and there just wasn't. What ended up happening was, you know, there was this extremely, I guess, unexpected, although, you know, the, the Eurozone was still grappling with the after effects of the financial crisis. Greece, Greece was Ireland, Exactly, yeah. teetering on the brink. And uh, and it was like a very dramatic summer. And that was also the, um, the debt ceiling debate was very consequential. So People this is, forget we had our debt downgraded by Standard & Poor's exactly, in 2011. Exactly. And it was a huge deal. And what happened was U.S. debt rallied as yeah. a result of that downgrade, which is not supposed to happen. Like, that's upside down. This is a little inside baseball, but if you can try to explain it, is there a sort of American exceptionalism with our treasury that oh, yeah. if something goes wrong in the world, everybody piles into our treasury, thereby bringing the price of the bonds up and the yields down. Exactly. So even if it's a U.S.-centric catastrophe, our bonds... The yields yeah. tumbled. Yeah, it's, you know, the reserve currency of the world. It's the basis for so much trade around the world and so many people rely on it. And basically the thing that people say is best house in a bad neighborhood. I don't know, take that as you will. Um, there are a lot of like little sayings that float around the bond market that you're like, should we examine that? Um, but this was one, this is one example where this was so acute, where it was a flight to quality. You know, the U.S. Treasury market is the safe haven where the U.S. government is always going to pay its debts. And therefore, you know, to your Game of Thrones reference, um, and therefore this is, this is where everybody rushes. And so yields tumble. What set up the fall at this company? Things were going swimmingly well for them. They set up an ETF, the Exchange Traded Fund. Bill Gross's anecdote in this book that he was sad that his mother once called and wasn't able to make the $1 million minimum for the mutual fund. So you came up, you know, it was a big innovation over the last 20 years, the exchange traded fund. You don't have to call an 800 number. You could just buy an entire market or an index on a very liquid stock. Why did they do that out of desire to serve customers? Or why did you even need the money when you're a $250 billion firm? Well, they will tell you grow or die. You must come up with new products. You must continue to grow. And they had just doubled their assets in the aftermath of the financial crisis from one to two trillion. Say that again. One to two trillion dollars. Like it was a very heady time at PIMCO and they had hired a ton of people, which is weird at PIMCO. They pride themselves on being, you know, running really lean. Um, so the ETF thing, Bill wants to be doing what's cool. You know, he wanted to be in the hot product and, and playing kind of in the, the sphere that was where everybody was playing. He wants to, to be in the game. And ETFs were what mattered. You know, BlackRock had bought iShares and was experiencing phenomenal growth. This is the product that everybody cared about and it was the next frontier to dominate, you know? So I think to some extent, yes, it was the it was based on client demand, but that also means that that's where Bill Gross just Bill wanted to be there. Isn't there something to be said for retiring or downshifting when you are on top of your game? I this think is about, why we're not billionaires. Not billionaires, but yeah. I think about Patrick Ewing and the New York <laughs> Knicks. I mean, at some point, if you don't manage that, I you know, Again, maybe it's a generational divide between us, but I'm looking at this the whole time, and your articles are, are a wonderful chronicle of this company kind of real-time, the milestones. Like, are you really going to take this on? Are you really going to expand into equities? I profiled <laughs> Neil Kashkari, who's now Federal Reserve President yeah. of, of Minnesota. They brought him in to run the equities business. He'd never run equities before. Yeah. He was trying to manage TARP for uh, Treasury. Um, but you know, growth at any price is a 
dangerous kind of siren song, isn't it? It is. It absolutely is. And I think, you know, there's a way to manage it, but it requires delegation. And if you're not capable of delegating, and, and also there's like a societal or cultural problem at PIMCO, I think, where they just had a bond posture and a bond mindset that was very ill-suited for equities at all. There are stories that people tell me where, you know, the equity guys would be like, oh, I'm trying to do this or that. And, and they're like, well, you really got to get that bid ask tighter. And they're like, there is no bid ask in stocks. This is a commission that's not negotiable. Like, what even are you? So like, the, yeah. again, they were just speaking a different language. And I think, you know, they've tried multiple times and they have a synthetic equity product. But for the most part, I think they've given up on that. Walk us again through what went wrong. Exactly. Right. I mean, I, I'm, I'm struck in this book. The thing that I can't get over is you can be a king for the longest time and have index beating returns, be a rock star and everything. And probably because of it, there are people ready to kind of come in and push you over the edge. If you have one bad year, your kind of background, your history doesn't seem to matter anymore. It, it very much is that it, that is right. I think, you know, I think of it as in my job, I always kind of value myself on my last story, you know, where if I did a good story, I'm like, all right, I'm good. I'm really good at my job. If my last story was like, meh, or if there's been too much time, God forbid, since my last story, it's the same, right? It's the, you know, anytime your performance dips and it happens to every manager, like there's no world in which you're going to have a perfect run. That's just like not statistically possible. And if it is, you're definitely running a Ponzi scheme. Then, then like your armor is dented. So especially, I mean, this is true across finance, but particularly at PIMCO, where if you are trying to assert an idea or a trade or uh, any kind of viewpoint in one of these investment committee meetings, but your performance is bad, no one's going to listen to you. They're going to pick you apart. You're pitching something and they're like, I'm sorry, are you talking? Like, it's just not going to land. And they're, I mean, that's like, they're going to be much worse than that and very hard on you. And no one's going to stand up for you. So that doesn't exclude Bill Gross. Basically, my, my kind of theory is he wobbled in 2011 with the bad treasury call. He ended up apologizing to clients for it. 2012 was fine. 2013, he again, you know, it was the taper tantrum where, you know, Ben Bernanke said, we're going to try to taper some of our, you know, quantitative easing, all these measures. And, you know, the bond market freaked out and took a lot of performance with it and certainly took inflows with it. So people stopped allocating money to bond funds. And this too, you know, this hit Bill Gross and Bill was not, Bill's fund did not do well. But then that kind of, um, I think that helped to add friction. You know, that makes him uncomfortable, makes him very grumpy and kind of difficult to be around, more difficult than usual. And that when you're, you know, having friction with, say, your co-CEO, your CEO at the time, who's trying to push into new products that you don't believe in, you can see how this might be a recipe for disaster. And and the other ego in SoCal opens up a total return bond shop just off yes. the 405 and says, we'll take your money. And, and he's is, doing well, and people are calling him the bond king. Yeah. So... Help us tie a bow around this. I mean, I don't know, universality and everything. Part of me wants to fixate on fixed income, but time and again, we see these stories of hubris on Wall Street, kind of psychographically. How did Bear Stearns have its Minsky moment? How did uh, a person like Bill Gross invent an entire trading apparatus and a market and kind of squander it? You know, don't make eye contact with me or your pages aren't paginated the right way. I, I I just don't understand it, I guess, as an empath or whatever the heck I am. But at some point, you should be thrilled. You have a charitable foundation. You have a massive house. You could fly anywhere. You're, you're featured at Davos. But he's built differently, and it's not enough. Yeah, I think um, you see this in his personal life, too, where he, when he gets in locked into a relationship dynamic, he does not 
exit gracefully. Like he will dig in and he will continue. He does not back down from a fight is how he put it. And this, you see this in a very unfortunate situation in his divorce where it got extremely ugly. And um, the same is true. He got in a dispute with his next door neighbor more recently. Where Didn't they playing the theme on Gilligan's Island or something? That's correct, the theme of Gilligan's Island, yes. Wait, and he said it was a dear, th- I wasn't trolling you, but it's it's important we just to like me it. and my we wife. We just really like the song. That's why we played it on repeat for days. So <laughs> we really like it. <laughs> yeah. Wow, it seems like Bonfire of the Vanities, but it actually happened and he stays it's real. He stays in the press. He does. He does. It caused me to rewrite the book about a hundred times. But um but <laughs> but yeah, it, it is an unfortunate legacy, I think. It's it's changed his reputation. It's changed how he's perceived, which is super sad, I think. Um, but also it's still the same personality traits, you know? He's just out, kind of flailing around trying to find a, a place to, I don't know, focus his attention. Well, he went to Janus, which if everybody remembers Janus, it was the rock star equity growth shop at yeah. the turn of the century. They invested at growth at any price and everything. I thought it was a strange fit. It was a very strange fit. Yeah, but it was run by a guy who he had employed at PIMCO, who he knew very well. And so he kind of just, he when he was panicking kind of at the end of his time at PIMCO, you know, he knew that they were about to oust him and he wanted to get the upper hand to retain any kind of control over his destiny. So he's like, I'm going to one-up them. I'm going to preempt this. They can't fire me. I quit. So he calls uh, Jeffrey Gunlock. He calls the main line at Double Line Capital, you know, wow. the guy who's been trouncing him in performance, the guy who's been also crowned the Bond King. And he calls and he's like, I think I might be fired over here. Like, can we talk about something? Can we talk Could about like Could you imagine a, getting that call? If you're the nemesis no. of the guy, right. you don't mind being called the Bond Prince and everything. And suddenly this guy's calling you. They did not believe, they this, literally Baba did not Bui believe or it. Something? They I mean, thought it was a practical joke. Cause people, you know, he had just, Jeffrey had just done this webcast and people always call in being like, I'm Picasso. I want to talk to Jeffrey Gunlog. And he's like, all right, all right. So when someone calls saying they're Bill Gross, he's like, sure, no, no. And they call back, you know, they had their, uh, the office manager call back and she was like, yeah, no, that, that was Bill. I recognized his voice. It's really him. So he, he went over to Jeffrey's house the next day and they talked about a potential, I don't know, dream team. And yet it wasn't in his nature to just hang up his hat and be charitable about it. He signed the pledge, the giving pledge. He did. Yeah. And actually I'm confused about the math on this because previously he had, had done what I think he called the Carnegie pledge, which was to give away all of his money, but the giving pledge is just half your money. So I think it's a downgrade. I think he's giving away. I don't know if that's accurate. Someone check me on that. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Mary Childs, host of NPR's Planet Money. The new bestseller is The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Built an Empire, and Lost It All. Mary was previously at Bloomberg, at Barron's, at the Financial Times. Uh, very well traveled. In the closing minutes we have, I'd love to talk about your career. Okay. Uh, because... You, I mean, it was by no means preordained that you were going to go into financial journalism or business journalism, much less bonds and the bond esoterica. I remember the heat from the third floor, the kind of the bullpen uh, newsroom at Bloomberg when I was there. Yeah. They acquired my magazine, which was kind of a dinosaur. But this place is intense. It reminded me of PIMCO's bond trading. It's not dissimilar. It's the heat from the machines is coming off. Everybody's intense. The uh, emphasis is on breaking news, timeliness. You had a volatile editor-in-chief back then. And you have to be, I mean, you have to be thick-gutted to be able to deal with a $2 trillion firm as a woman. Yeah, that part. As um, a male-dominated firm, right? And to expect answers and to not get... Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. It's hard for me to um, kind of explicate that because I've never had a, a control experiment. You know, I've, I've only ever been female when engaging with 
um, PIMCO and, and really everything. But um, so, so it's hard, but I do think there was a big confusion. Like everyone treated me like I worked for them and I, or I'm their daughter. And, you know, they were very disappointed in me sometimes yeah, where they yeah. would be like, Mary, I just, I just really need to get an advanced copy of the book so I can prepare the clients for it. And I'm like, that's not how anything, why would I? It's like what a is, Jedi mind trick. Yeah. You're I'm like, the, okay, that's your problem. I'm like, I don't know how to yeah. help you here. Um, so I do think that there was a lot, you know, finance is notoriously sexist, fine, racist. We, we know these things. And I do think that that was certainly at play. You know, the, the gender stuff was very much relevant for me. And, and it's interesting talking to them in both the reporting process of the book and in the aftermath, you know, because my book is, you know, about men fundamentally. It's, there are like two women in the whole book, which I was kind of embarrassed about, but I didn't, you know, cause that to happen that way. And so I said something in the author's note, like, you know, this book was fundamentally about men. And, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said about why that is. And, you know, the people that are allowed in the center of power are not, you know, we, there's like a purposefulness to that, that exclusion. And, you know, Muhammad Alarian was most frequently painted kind of as the villain to me in this book. And it's notable that he's one of the very few people of color at the firm. So, you know, they say they're working on the discrimination thing, as is everyone in, in finance. And I'm sure they are, but it was palpable at times and super annoying. And I just, you know, the point one source texted me a long time ago in like 2014. He was texting me. We've been communicating for I don't know how many months at that point. And he was like, is it really annoying that I hit on you all the time? And I was like, yeah, yes. <laughs> and he was like, oh, okay, I'll stop. And he stopped. So that was great. But not all of them are so self-aware. What about when they found out that this book was going to happen? There were all these legend, these, these stories that there was oh a kill God. fee for it. And yeah. That's, that's not a hit job or anything. They're just like, we'll pay you to go away or bring you into PR or something. Yeah, someone actually, they were like, he he offered to broker a deal with PIMCO. He's like, how much do you need to, to not write this book? Let me go offer to them and just see what I can do. And I'm like, I thank you so much for your interest. I'm going to pass on that. Yeah, I, I think they were really uncomfortable. I know they were really uncomfortable because, you know, it, first of all, it took me so long. So you could give me an interview in 2016 and then you're just twiddling your thumbs waiting for this story to come out and see how you're perceived. It's stressful, you know. You, you. These people are very powerful and but wealthy. But wouldn't you have and, sleepless nights? I mean, I remember oh, yeah. in my book, which was nonfiction, the legal rounds of it were alone were just terrifying. I mean, they fine tooth comb it. Who said this? Can you show me proof? Can you corroborate that? The fact checker and everything. Every word. So you'd fact check it and and try your best. And at the end, it was you against a two trillion dollar, highly litigious, quasi governmental firm. <laughs> I would not be able to sleep at night. I love how you put that. And yeah, no, I wear a night guard. Yeah, <laughs> I've definitely, I, uh, that's accurate. Yes, I, it was terrible. I don't know, you know, at a certain point you do know that your reporting is accurate, you know, and I would definitely wake up at 3 a.m. like, oh my God, there's a word on page 212 that isn't quite exactly I, I right. I know the feeling. It's not suddenly, it's abruptly and I got to go fix it, you know, and that's still happening and the book is out. So I really have to work on that. But, but I got to stop editing. But I mean, that's real. You know, these firms are very powerful and, and, and it's not just me, you know, this is an, an increasing phenomenon, I think, where firms have figured out how to put pressure on people. And, you know, that's individuals, billionaires that are, that are rich and powerful and can just send lawyers after you and firms too. And I think that that's, you know, increasingly the journalism side of things, we don't have the resources to fight all the fights that we need to fight. So coming out of college and you took that gap year to go, what was it, paint in Ghana and other countries? Yes, yes. And you had the, the, the gumption, it's great, to tell Bloomberg to wait another year. I thought that that was grounds for them back in the day to never hire you, but no, they were I understanding. Know. They were understanding. And yeah, then they you were, were nice. ready to dive into covering the bond market? 
Uh, well, Bloomberg at the time, and I think that to some extent they still do this, they had a rotation program where I got to try out the currency desk, did not thrive, try out the tech coverage. I was shockingly bad at that. And then I tried credit default swaps and that just really suited me. And I can't explain that. I don't, I don't know. I really like the type of person that like traded credit default swaps in 2009. They had just gone through the crisis. They were blamed for the crisis. They were elated to find someone who wasn't going to be mean to them, who just wanted to know what was going on. It was just a really nice place to be. <laughs> look into your, <laughs> I have to tell, bring it back to the here and now and look into your crystal ball with inflation if if there's any time that I think generationally I need a total return fund I need somebody to get my back and navigate for me it's now how can you with any kind of comfort or security say that inflation has been tamed for good I mean what is it running officially at between seven and eight percent and the Fed's target is two percent and the bond market is 10-year treasuries yielding Two and a half percent, and the Fed said we'll not have to hike five or six times. It's a different uh, inflection. It is. It is. And the argument, you know, for the past year has been, or I guess it ended in, I don't know, December, where, you know, was this going to be transitory or not? And what does that mean? You know, it, I, I think this is actually really embarrassing to admit, but I think I thought that inflation was just when prices went up for no reason. And if there was a reason it didn't count, like it was called something else. You know, and, and that I realized that I had this like very naive view when, you know, it was supply chain stuff. And I was like, well, that's not really inflation. That's supply chain stuff. Like, why are we calling that inflation? And that doesn't make the price increase any less real. So, of course, of course, I was wrong. And I've been very, very educated in the past year. But but these these things have become more intractable than I think we thought they would. You know, we thought that the shipping uh, problems would unsnarl. We thought that the pandemic would ease, you know, ever we thought that there wouldn't be a war. We, there were so many reasons as to why we are seeing this inflation. But the thing that we're seeing now is people have noticed it. It's affecting their lives and they expect more inflation. And that's where you start to get into some very real problems where the more people expect inflation, the more inflation, because you bake it into the rest of the economy, it gets communicated through the economy. And then it becomes a bit more And I, I brought this up with other guests before. There aren't young people that have an institutional memory of capital I inflation. There are people, I don't know if Dalal Solomon is here, there are other old-time traders and everything that remember the late 70s and early 80s and the, the burn of inflation very pungently. And you can go to any Wall Street trading desk, you can go to a PIMCO, there just isn't that institutional memory anymore. I think that's right. And I think that's partially, you know, that's part of my ignorance, right? Where I read about inflation, I interviewed Paul Volcker, like I had this understanding, but I hadn't experienced it. And, you know, to your point, this generation of everybody under 40 hasn't experienced it. And so when Larry Summers is out there yipping about how it's going to be this big problem, we're like, it's literally not like, what are you, you know, there's just not a, I think we were dismissive of it in a way because of that lack of experience. Mary Childs, I have to give you props as a fellow business journalist. Uh, you managed to turn something as esoteric and otherwise rice cakey as, as fixed income into a uh, page turner. In fact, I think I might call this episode broken income. What do you think about that? The book is The Bond King, how one man made a market, built an empire and lost it all. And the author is Planet Money star Mary Childs. Thank you so much Thank for joining us. Thank you so us. much. This was really fun. Full disclosure, our producer tonight is Claire Morgan. Special thanks to The Robin School, our gracious host, Dean Mickey Quinones, who's been like a Father away from home to me. Andy Miner, gosh, she's the best non-correlating asset. Runs spreadsheets and emails. Andy, thank you. Courtney Ennis in marketing and Zoe Peters on social. Props to our house AV crew. A special shout out to Stan Maupin 
and Nancy Eberhardt. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. You can catch Full Disclosure on NPR member station WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia Public Radio. In attendance from Virginia Public Radio, Mallory No Pain, Jad Khalil, Bruce Marquis. Stop by and say hi. Uh, the Dean has prepared a sumptuous reception for us. Thank you for joining us and back with you next week. 